KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. This is Inside Isla Vista. Fall quarter at UCSB has begun, and you'll notice a lot more people in IV these days, and that includes a lot more bicycles. I'm Adam Yonke, UCSB's Associated Students Bicycle Shop Coordinator. There is no denying the diversity and cycling culture on Santa Barbara's South Coast. So tonight, we're putting the spotlight on one of Santa Barbara's own, Wade Nomura. Wade's creations pushed what was possible on the BMX track and contributed to the development and evolution of the mountain bike. Nomura Racing was founded right here in Santa Barbara in the late 1970s. As you will hear through our talk, Wade's bicycle frames are cherished to this day and represent the bicycle as art. You'll also hear about his life, successes, and work. This conversation took place during the summer of 2022 at the Santa Barbara Museum of Contemporary Art in partnership with the then exhibition through Wet Agency. This talk was made possible by the museum's curator, Alexander Terry, and Santa Barbara's Department of Applied Geography. Thank you and enjoy. Uh, Wade Nomura, born and raised in Santa Barbara, actually. Um, now living in Carpinteria, moved to Carpinteria in 76, and unfortunately ended up becoming the mayor of Carpinteria. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, say, but... <laughs> I have a copy of Wade's book right here. And basically, the questions that I have for Wade um, are really sourced from this book, but also sourced from, again, this curiosity of BMX and curiosity of cycling, but then curiosity about Wade's history. So. So Wade, your book, uh, Creating Destiny, the title, um, and then you wrote on the inside to me, when you sent it to me, you said, enjoy creating your destiny, and I felt like that was intentional. The title, if you could like, sign it over to people this way. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> that is correct. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about the title? Like where you kind of came up with that? The reason that the title became Creating Destiny was because for me, I had no idea where I was going to end up. I will tell you this, I never in my lifetime would have imagined ever jumping on a BMX bike. I never in my lifetime would ever thought I would be a mayor of a city. So all these things just happen. Currently, I'm also doing a lot of work for Rotary International. I do humanitarian projects and have been involved annually with as many as a thousand projects uh, around the world. So again, something I never planned on doing. That's why uh, the title became Creating Destiny. Because your destiny is something that just happens. And if you take advantage of those things that come along that you have, are passionate about, or you know you can make an impact and change somebody else's life, you would go in that direction. So what's that do? That makes your life look like a zigzag. You have no idea where you're gonna go. But the end result is, is that you, in this zigzag motion, you've touched millions of people's lives and changed those. So I think that's why Creating Destiny became the title of this book. I thought that was one of those messages I did want to share. Yeah, very cool. Um, so destiny is, I feel like, is this like pervasive theme throughout your book. Um, and we met up for breakfast a few weeks ago, and you mentioned that your familial roots in this area go back to the late 1800s. That is incredible. Do you want to explain a little bit sure. about how that kind of came to be? My uh, grandparents actually migrated here. Um, the first one came in the 1890s. Other ones came shortly after that, in the early 1900s. They all came from Japan. So our family moves from my grandparents' time were from Japan. What happened during that time cycle is that they became involved mostly in agriculture. They're agricultural workers, farmers, things like that. My grandfather was a melon grower in Imperial Valley. 
my other grandfather on my mother's side had a produce business, and so that's how they uh, ended up making a living. The reason for it, from what I understand, of them coming over here was because the uh, United States, America, was looked at a place of prosperity. In Japanese culture, if you are in a certain caste, a certain uh, society, you're not going to be able to move up that ladder, not, not effectively. Whereas if you're here in the United States, anybody could uh, prosper if they work hard at it. So that was the dream that they came for, was to see that happen. Yeah. So very interesting that that is, like it's very interesting, but it's also not surprising to, to kind of understand that narrative from the outside looking in, but then at times when you do possess that reality, um, whatever that dream is, we as individuals or communities chase, it looks a little different when we do finally catch it. And so um, World War II comes around, and your family is rounded up and interned and forcibly displaced along with hundreds of thousands or hundred, roughly a hundred thousand other Japanese families. Um, your family decided to locate to Santa Barbara after being released from internment. Can you talk a little bit about, if you can, share about that experience about being forcibly interned from your family's perspective, but then also how they made that conclusion to stay in the United States, but then also land in Santa Barbara. Sure. Uh, that's a interesting one. I could talk all day on how that action transpired. But my uh, grandparents, my father's side, were in Imperial as I said. They were uh, rounded up, literally, in uh, World War II time, and taken to post in Arizona. My mother's family was in San Luis Obispo. Same thing happened to them. They were given 24 hours to pack up a bag, and that's all they could take with them. My mother talks about on that trip going to Boston, not knowing where they're going, that uh, they were actually put in cattle cars because there weren't enough trains for them to get around. They were told that all of their possessions, including their pets, uh, whatever they had, uh, properties, houses, uh, personal belongings, everything else would be taken care of. They were going to put those in warehouses. Well, of course, four years later, they were all gone. So. Uh, that didn't happen. The um, fortunate part for some people, for example, my late wife's family, they actually had somebody that was willing to take care of their place for them. They left the business with this gentleman. He took care of the whole thing, and at the end of the war, he handed them back the keys and said, it's all, it's all yours, but that did not happen very often. If you look at some of the other people that were actually displaced, we have doctors, dentists, a lot of professional people. Well, their practices were taken away. They were not able to go back and reestablish practices because their clientele were people that didn't trust them because of the war. So uh, because of that, it was hard to find a relocation center coming back out of that time period. My parents, both sides, uh, my mother's side and my father's side, had actually ended up in Santa Barbara. My grandfather on the Nomura side was actually recruited out of camp. He was offered a job by then International uh, Olympic president, Avery Brundage, to take care of his state here in Montecito. So that's how the Nomura family ended up here. My mother's side, because it was limited on where they could go to, because they had no idea of what it was going to be like back home or wherever they were coming from originally, the group actually settled into Santa Barbara because there was a strong Chinatown right near here. And in that Chinatown, they were able to then get a portion of it. Two blocks of it was converted to Japan, Japanese town. And so that was a safe haven for them. They could literally come in there and 
have a neighborhood and be able to live similar to what they did in camp with the security knowing that they had uh, you know, the numbers, something that wouldn't be isolated. Eventually, they moved out slightly beyond that. We have families I know that ended up on the base of the tractor farm out, out there and some people in Galita. So that's how we actually ended up in Santa Barbara, just because of the relocation process. Yeah. Um, when you talked about having possessions uh, taken and not returned during internment, did your family, I mean, besides this business um, on your wife's side, did you, were there, were there any personal artifacts that were ever restated to your family? Recovered? Recovered, yeah. Not really. Yeah. No, none that I heard of. Yeah. Unfortunately, there were a few instances where it actually was good. Um, some families were invited back to the neighborhoods, and uh, the family actually was welcomed back by certain neighborhoods, but this was a very rare occasion. If you think about it too, wartime, and for those of you that are my age or older, if you recall what happened right after the war, and if you're watching television or movies, uh, there was no such thing as a good guy in Japanese, because it was right after the war. So um, Japanese were given the face of the enemy, no matter where you go. This was 10, 15 years later, those, those movies still existed where the only time somebody from America would see a Japanese person was on one of those movies as a bad person, as, as the enemy. So it was hard to then get back into it. And we had to deal with, I had to deal with a lot of prejudice, especially as a younger person. You mentioned um, in your book, I believe in the first chapter, that your grandfather, out of boredom, would, had begun like doing these carvings, these like wood sculpture carvings. Um, and I'm curious if you still have any of those or if you're still in possession of any of those. Um, but I'm also curious what the link is between what your grandfather makes or what your family makes in general um, and your connection to making things and being a fabricator. And is there any lineage there? And is, are there other numbers? That, that, that is a good question. <laughs> Something I hadn't thought about they mentioned that right now. Um, my grandfather actually was, uh, he started building in, in, uh, in camp because he had nothing to do. They had, all day long, they didn't have any jobs or businesses, so literally he sat around. He was able to get a, a whittling knife, which was very rare to be able to get a small pocket knife in because they're illegal in the camps. And with that little knife, he started whittling by finding burrowing outside of Poston, uh, out there in the desert. He would bring this home and actually carve things. And I do, I have a, actually a, a bookend carving of uh, horses, uh, which, which I think kicked at uh, one of my possessions. I was fortunate too because I'm the firstborn son of the firstborn son, so <laughs> fortunately I got to pick up what I wanted to keep. <laughs> That's what I got. That was his prized possession, so that became mine. My father, um, late in life, didn't start doing the same thing. He took up carving too because his father was a, a wood carver. So um, because of that, uh, recently, as an extreme, very recently, the COVID time, I actually started doing a little bit of wood carving also. So it looks like it's my destiny. I didn't want to kill that destiny. I didn't want to be the one person that, well, that was it. You know, it was a tradition until that guy showed up. So I started carving too. Um, but when you take a look at what you asked me about, about the bike, the, the BMX bike, and what I did there, other things, life lessons, I will tell you this, and I'll share a story. This is one that my grandfather told me when I was very young. He would take me to the, the Brennage estate, and when uh, Brennage was coming home, he would walk the grounds in, in Mossy. And by the way, it's right next to, right behind Lotus Land. That's where he actually the, the estate was. 
and he would walk in there, and we would walk the whole grounds before he came in. And on that one day, we were at the gate looking back. He goes, wait, I want you to take a look and see. And I was probably only four or five years old. He goes, what do you see? I said, well, I see an immaculate garden. I says, every hedge literally was perfectly square, perfectly trimmed. There was not a leaf out of place, no weeds anywhere. Even the gravel and the soil had rate marks on it that were consistent with uh, a pattern, uh, a water pattern. So I said, I don't see anything you've done there. That's, that's about as good as it would get. I can't see it being improved. He goes, I want you to remember that. He goes, whatever you do in life, when you do something and you're out someplace, you make sure that you leave it better than you found it. You take pride in what you do. No matter what it is, whether it's gardening, whether it's landscaping, or whatever you decide to do, or carving, he goes, you do the best you can at it. Because you always find flaws, but you always know it was your best effort. So that was my life lesson from him. And that's where the bikes kind of came into play. Because my landscaping career, I'm a landscape contractor. I've always strived to have the best possible landscape. You never do anything halfway, you make it the best. Even if it comes out of your pocket to make it better, you make it better. Well, the bike frames are exactly the same. I never thought about being a BMX racer, but once I started looking at it, and I opened up the bike shop on Alamar, I saw these bike frames coming through. And at that time, I took 12 frames that I could buy, put them all side by side, took a look at the geometries of them, and this is well before CAD or computers, and I actually drafted uh, on paper every frame that I could buy or that I could get. And I went out and had my riders evaluate the rider of which one was faster, which one was quicker off the gate, which one jumped better, which one turned better. And I started finding all these trends in each bike design. For example, the rear triangle where the chain end is at, shorter was faster, shorter was better. On the front, longer was better because you have more leverage. Height-wise, I found in part of my design of the bikes and why a lot of people had a hard time learning how to ride them, I dropped the bottom bracket or the crank where the pedals come out, lower than the axle line because, because of a leverage factor. If it's above the axle line, you have no leverage. You're fighting against gravity. But if it's below the axle line, you actually have leverage because you triangulated the efficiency or the resistance of that bike. So all these things came into play. Um, Ideally, the number of bike that I built ended up being what some people consider um, an artist's version of a bike. It was uh, something that was very unique. It was an artist's bike, so, yeah. and that's why. Yeah. So it, it's interesting in your book, like kind of coming back to the landscaping. And the landscape, your your background with landscaping was something again, like, not familiar with, like not way bikes somewhere. And so. In your book, and I know we kind of talked about this a little bit, but in your book, you really talk fondly about your practice of landscaping, and you really have this like poetic sense of relating it to this artistry. Um, the BMX, not so much. Like there isn't that corollary to the BMX um, frame or to that sculpture. And so I think what is really beautiful about that is that you have this this art discipline and this practice that's your profession. Um, but then you also have these other tangential projects. But can you kind of, ex maybe not prioritize, but maybe explain your love of landscaping and like altering land and like I guess where that comes I, from? I will tell you this, it's probably a misconception on your part. Only because when I wrote the book, we wanted to highlight landscaping as a priority. It's my business, it's kind of my roots of that one. 
BMX was a small section of that, a segment of the book itself, only because uh, we decided not a lot of people are going to be interested in my BMX career <laughs> or an interest in you know, why I built the bike a certain way. So that's why we left it out. Ultimately, my plan was to actually write a second book exclusively on the number of bikes. So, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be working on that one. Uh, no promises on when or if it's going to get done, but that would be probably my next project. I would like to share a lot of the experiences for those of you that have been collectors and that appreciate my bike designs. Yeah. So, with your, no, just real quick, going back to landscaping, you, if I understand this correctly, you, your grandfather started a landscaping business that got passed down to your father, and then you have since inherited. Correct. That is, so, this is like a Regeneration landscaping business. Correct. That is correct. Um, has it remained the same name? Has it always been the same name? Yes, it has been. It's always been. Uh, I've been the principal. My father was the principal, and my grandfather was the principal. Um, by the way, I vowed I would never be a landscaper. I hate <laughs> My dad took me out when I was nine years old. Uh, I was thinking, and this is again part of creating destiny. I hated it. And my father told me, he goes, you are the worst gardener I've ever seen. So he goes, what you're going to do, he goes, you're going to go out working with the crew. And it was a Hispanic crew. And my foreman at the time, he was a well, college graduate, was uh, on radio, he was a radio announcer. He took me under his way and he says, I'm going to teach you Spanish. And he goes, the way I'm going to teach you Spanish, he goes, we don't speak any English when, I'm, when you're working with me. If you want something to eat, if you want a break, if you want a drink, you ask me, but you ask me in Spanish, or I'm going to ignore you. He says, so you better figure out how to say things, especially if you want to go to the bathroom, because I'm not going to stop you. You're going to just, you know, it's going to keep going the way it's going to go. Well, I hated it, because I would speak Spanish three months, play baseball in the morning, go to work in the afternoon. Well, what happened was, when I started junior high school, I started beginner Spanish. In eighth grade, they made me skip two years. I went into advanced Spanish in my eighth grade year from the beginning. I it's made a mistake. I'm in the wrong class. I took the class, aced that one, and the teacher goes, you need to take one more test. I go, what's that? He goes, you need to test and see if you're bilingual. I go, I don't want to take another test. He goes, you don't get it. If you pass that test, your language requirement is done through high school and college. So I took the test and I tested bilingual. So, <laughs> big benefit there, along with now that I'm with positive. It was positive. Um, but then the other thing that's been great is that now that I am bilingual, I'm able to work in a lot of Latin countries uh, around the world doing projects there because of the fact that I can speak the language. Central America and South America are probably my most dominant areas that I go and travel to to do humanitarian projects. Yeah. Um, it sounds like, you know, you're it, from the book, there's a, there's a really interesting moment where it sounds like your discovery of BMX has this, like, intersection with landscaping, charity, Cycling. Um, can you explain maybe that seed and or I guess that anecdote of those those kids that were hassling you or that you had like taken under your wing? I, I could uh, actually I should probably start uh, how I got into the events. You probably want to hear this one. Um, I was actually landscaping, doing a uh, project, uh, low-income housing area, right below City College. And at this project site, I got there. I awarded a contract from the city. Started doing work out there, and I had five kids that would come out every day. And this was during school time, and they would just hang out with me, ages 10 to 14 years old, and actually 13 years old. And every day there, I asked them, I go, Why are you guys out here? Why are you guys hanging around? You're supposed to be in school. They go, We 
can't go back. We got kicked out. We're expelled. We're expelled for the whole year. So if this is what we do all day long. We just hang out in the projects. Well, I looked around and it, it was uh, pretty gangland. It was. It was. Uh, they were being influenced a lot by negative uh, forces. So I told. I took them in. I said, I'll tell you what. Start working. And if you work for me, I'll pay you some money. They started doing that, doing just little little big jobs. One day I had my motorcycle on the back. You probably saw the picture there. And he goes, what are you doing that? Well, I'm going to go practice. I'm a, I'm a racer. I race motorcycles. He said, well, could we go with you? So I took them out, took them to the track. They loved it. I put them on the back of the bike. And, you know, I wouldn't do it nowadays. But I mean, we went through, did the jumps. We couldn't double and all kinds of stuff. These kids ain't on the back. <laughs> <laughs> they had a helmet on. <laughs> but at the end of it, they said, well, that was really cool. You know what? When we grow up, we want to be like you. You want to be a motorcycle racer. <laughs> I go, you can't afford the bikes. I said, that's one thing. I said, but we could afford BMX bikes. So I literally went out there and priced it out to see what it would be like. And uh, that's how I opened up Memorial Racing, because I could get wholesale bike parts for the kids in the project. That's, that was how we ended up starting Memorial Racing. Shortly after that, we found out that there was a track, Stowe Park. A lot of you guys uh, were talking about the track. So we went out to Stowe Park and I signed them up in the beginner class. They loved it. They couldn't race. They were really slow. They were barely going to ride bikes, but they got to race. So we did that. At one race, there was a Father's Day race. And they said, hey, wait, you got to go sign up. You're a father. So I went out, signed up, followed one of the bikes that I had given the kids, and ended up winning the Father's Day race. <laughs> well, one of the guys that I was racing against goes, you know, he goes, I race national. He goes, and very seldom do I ever get beat. He goes, and you smoke me. There's a Grand National in Las Vegas at the end of the year. You might consider going there. So I went to Vegas, uh, built, a, built a bike out of parts that I had at my bike shop, went out there, ended up racing the Grand Nationals. There was a brand new class, 27 and over, and I won that race, making me a, the first, well, national champion, the gave me national title. But I decided that if I could compete at the Grand National level and win, I may have potential to win this. So that's when I started designing the number of bikes. I figured if I'm going to race out there and I want to have make sure that I have the best bike underneath me, and I couldn't find anything that was close, so that's why I built the bike. I built it so I could race it. So I lost track of that. In probably 15 years after I retired from racing, um, the Japanese National Museum, the Japanese American National Museum, inducted me in uh, to the Hall of Fame. Uh, this is one another. And the one in Los Angeles, um, in an exhibit called More Than a Game. And they asked me one question. They said, you know, uh, what do you attribute your success to? And I started thinking about it, and I had to say, uh, first of all, all these things came from my mind. Since now I was really working out, you know, driving, having the best bike, my opinion out there. But it actually hit me then, and I realized it was my family, my wife, my children, my parents, my brothers, my sisters, and my very close friends that actually sacrificed for me because they lived my dream. If they were not around, I couldn't race. I couldn't go out there. So they took care of my family and everything. Literally, I was by myself on the, uh, out there. That's why I thought it was all me, but it wasn't. It was all about everybody else that I didn't even think about that were keeping me out there to race. So it was a big one. In chapter five of your book, um, Open Your Eyes, speak a little bit to some of the prejudices that you've encountered, whether it be in the DMX um, community or just locally. And I'm curious, you know, how that, I was always, I was like really interested reading this 
um, those anecdotes, but then also understanding that this book reads as this like really long format, almost like resume of sorts of just like accomplishment and just like really this kind of input that you've created just from this grit and determination. Oftentimes within the Asian diaspora within the United States, there's a really complicated trope, which is the model minority. And I'm just curious if you have any sort of like reflection about that or any sort of proximity to that idea or to that expression. And it feels pretty salient today. I mean, there's a Supreme Court case that has, I think, that's been debated about Harvard admission students at Harvard, and that really kind of gets to the heart of that idea. So I'm just curious about your that, that, that has happened, I think. I'd say fairly recent years. Uh, even up to uh, when my kids were going to school, we took a look at uh, UC Irvine, and at that time, they were accepting minorities, anything but Asians. So you still see that happening today. You talk about the model minority. Uh, that was one thing that I didn't want to get caught in. In other words, when I say that, I knew that I always wanted to accomplish, I wanted to achieve, and I wanted to do the best I could possibly do. But I fit perfectly within that uh, model minority mode. People see me as, quote, you know, a success because I'm a minority. Well, that wasn't the case. I was doing it for myself. And being a minority is an interesting kind of concept because you brought up in a society that's predominantly white. And then I was only one of four minorities in my grammar school in the Mesa, Monroe. Um, so it was, it was kind of strange. But in looking at that and being a minority, you always think you fit in. If you're, if you're an athlete, if you're, you're, you get your buddies out there, you're playing sports, you always fit in. But then you realize that when you get home, you look in the mirror, you don't look the same as all everybody else. And, and because of that, it actually drove me. I wanted to make sure I was better. Because people have always looked at me as inferior. Uh, and by the way, I was. I was a short <laughs> fat kid when I was younger. <laughs> I was a terrible athlete. Uh, when I went from sixth grade to seventh grade, I literally was six inches over that summer and went from the little short fat kid to the superstar. I was a superstar. I was uh, the number one pick on every every sport from baseball, basketball, football, only because I was now a monster not at 5'7". <laughs> but that was as a, uh, a seventh grader. So, so because of that, I, I did see the benefits of working hard and, and achieving that. I do see that on occasion, people will call you the model minority, but that's because people are literally focusing on minorities, you're not focusing as a society. I think the hardest part of it is that we, if you look around this room, we're a planet. Uh, most places, that's, that's what we see. And the benefit of that is there's no majorities or no minorities. Everything fits in one and the same. That's something people have to start understanding and realizing. We fight against prejudice all the time. A part of fighting the prejudice creates more prejudice. I've seen this happen. Um, I do uh, speaking um, on EEI in different areas uh, because of my being a mayor and, and working with different groups. But I will tell you this, when people can start respecting people because of who they are, that's when you're going to have a balance. You always have to look at them for, for what they individually accomplish. The individual is unique. Each and every one of us, anywhere in the world, you never find a twin of yourself. Somebody may be close, but that uniqueness is something that everybody else should also cherish. The uniqueness of each individual. Yeah. Thank you. You have been listening to my conversation with Wade Nomura on Inside Isla Vista. 
Thanks for tuning in Wednesdays at 5 p.m. to find out what's happening in and around Isla Vista. I am Adam Yonke, artist and coordinator of UCSB's Associated Students Bicycle Shop. Our theme music is Siesta by Jazzer. This is 91.9 FM KCSB.